Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. This Sunday is a very historical day, and here's why. It was two years ago, this Sunday, that we closed City Church because of COVID. Literally two years ago, on the 15th of this month, we closed City. And I have to tell you that in the rearview mirror, looking back over these past two years, there's several things that strike me. First of all, having served as a lead pastor or been in ministry for over three decades, I can tell you that the first year to year and a half was the toughest time of my life leading pastorally. Huge challenges. But even in the midst of that, we saw God's hand just incredibly faithful to the church here at City. What I saw during that time still amazes me. I watched as we went from not being able to worship, and I had called the leader of our tech team, um, Jonathan Davis, and I said, look, there's rumblings, we won't be able to have church. And he and his team pivoted, and in four days, that was Wednesday on Sunday, they had us online, live streaming with excellence, with absolute excellence. So huge cheer to them. The other thing that you might not know is during the past two years, they have made approximately 850 videos for our church because of the pandemic, from daily devotionals to communication to all the stuff that's important to keep a church together. Um, so they made literally over or a little bit less than 850 videos because of the pandemic over the last two years. Not only that, but we saw people shift the roles in which they had been serving here at City because the needs of our church had changed. And so that has been just literally amazing. You know, another thing over the past two years that has been thrilling for me, it hasn't been without its heartache, but it's been thrilling. I've watched people here at City who are polar opposites politically and on issues that have been a part of our culture over the past two years. I have watched people on opposite ends of the spectrum stand next to each other in worship and raise their hands and worship Jesus. I've watched that. And here's why. They understand the kingdom of God is more important than any temporary thing in this world. They recognize that. And as followers of Jesus, the Bible calls it the unity of the Holy Spirit. That the church is in a unique position unlike any other institution in the world where the Spirit of God is here to allow us to stay in unity even though we have a different thoughts and even times deeply held different thoughts on topics. Whereas in the kingdoms of this world, people have canceled each other. Families have been split and broken and people have walked away from lifelong relationship. And so I'm excited, and it hasn't been without its struggles. But I've been excited to watch here at City as people have done that and submitted themselves to the Lordship of Jesus, which means the unity of the Spirit must be held. The other thing I want to say that's more exciting than anything is in, in the world for me, just so exciting, is what we have not done as a church 
have tried to push for or develop some monolithic belief system about these issues. We have not done that. The greater miracle, again, the greatest miracle and the clear demonstration of the kingdom of God has been people who are on opposite ends of those issues, who have loved each other and worshiped together. That's the greater sign of the power of God. That's huge. It's huge. And so these past two years have brought us great challenge. And while the world around us has been really raging and struggling and it's been chaotic and difficult, many people have verbalized to me that this has been a place where they have come to find peace and to be restored in the midst of the chaos. And that's what church is all about. It's about the kingdom of God advancing in this world and with it bringing the shalom of God, which is found nowhere else. But here we are two years later, and we see that the pandemic is lifting. And one of the needs we have at our church is, as the pandemic is lifting, we're seeing more and more of our children begin to return for our kids' ministry, which we call Next Gen. And below our feet are maxed out rooms. We've actually had to turn families away. Families have come with their children, and we've had to turn them away because we didn't have enough workers or enough room. And so God has really blessed us because the church across the street, the Covenant Church, does not use all of their facilities on a Sunday morning. And so they have opened up their gymnasium to us. And so part of our children's ministry, as you saw in the announcement video, will be head, held next door over at the Covenant Church. And I think, thank Pastor David for that. He's a very generous and kind man. Another thing you may not know is during COVID, we spent a lot of time underneath a very large tent that we put out here in the parking lot. How many of you worshiped under that, ate under that, did something under that? What you need to know is that the pastor of First Baptist Church on Park Street reached out to me and said, Pete, would you have any use of a tent that's about 40 by 50? I said, when can I come pick it up? So he has been so generous with that. And it's been awesome to see how pastors around our community have been working together during the pandemic to support and to love each other and to see all of our congregations being blessed during this time. By the way, if you have not noticed, every Sunday morning, whoever prays up front prays for every church in Charlottesville because we have a passion for the kingdom of God to come here in Seaville and it won't just be through city. It will not just be through city church. But again... What we're faced with now is a growing children's ministry and a growing need for people to serve in that area. So if God would touch your heart at the end of this service, we're going to have ways for you to sign up. Now, as we are taking the year to look at the kingdom of God, the several-week series that we're in the middle of in the kingdom of God series is entitled Journey to Jerusalem. What we're doing is we're journeying with Jesus because in each gospel, he makes a definitive announcement that he has turned the compass of his life towards Jerusalem to die. And in all four gospels, up to half of the gospel is after that announcement. It's literally Jesus surrendering into God's will for his life to give up his life for everyone. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 13, and we're going to read an episode where Jesus makes that announcement in the gospel 
of Matthew. Let's read. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, By the way, in this moment, Jesus renames Simon to Peter. I tell you that you are Peter. By the way, Peter is the second best name in all of the Bible other than Jesus, in case you didn't know. Reading on, I tell you that you are a Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not overcome it. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns. Now, what we have in this biblical story where Jesus makes the announcement in Matthew that he's going to Jerusalem and die, it's a story that is deeply, deeply profound. It's a story where the text tells us, and we're going to read it again, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say the Son of Man is? By the way, you cannot tell it in English. But in the Greek, you can tell that Jesus definitively led his disciples to this area. It was intentional. He led them to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And if you were to look at Israel, you'd discover that Jesus has taken them to the far reaches of Israel... And he's brought them kind of to the border of Israel where paganism is thriving. And Jesus takes his disciples and very deliberately takes them to the region of Caesarea Philippi. I will tell you those Jewish young men that were his his disciples, their skin was crawling. This is an area where no righteous Jewish man would ever be found. The reason why is, and I've stood there many times in Israel, This area that's known as Caesarea Philippi, again, is on the fringe of Israel, but in this immediate place where Jesus takes his disciple, if you stood there, you could see a grotto to the Greek god Pan, you could see an amphitheater off to your right, you could see the ruins of a temple to the Greek god Zeus, and Pan, by the way, was the combination of humanity and goats. And so if you were standing there, you would instantly know that there was a buffet of gods because there was also a temple to Philip Caesar. By this time, the Roman leaders are being worshipped. So Jesus brings his disciples into the midst of this smorgasbord of gods and says, who do people say I am? The context is huge. By the way, here are some pictures Here's a picture of the cave, and this cave is literally known as the gate of hell. You see, the Greeks believed 
that out of this cave, which is the headwaters for the Jordan River, that demonic spirits could travel freely from the underworld into our world. It was known as the gates of hell. What you will notice now in this plaque that you're looking at, which is a picture taken from this exact spot, is that these are the ruins of the temple houses or the the Greek uh, houses of worship to the different gods. And then here's a picture that you're looking at now of literally the cave and the river that flows out from it that becomes the headwaters of the Jordan River. So if you stood where Jesus had his disciples, you would have seen all of these houses of worship. But the other thing that you would have seen off to your right was an amphitheater. And that amphitheater was used for unspeakable acts in the worship of the Greek god Pan. It involves men and animals. And here's Jesus' disciples. And he brings them to the middle of this, a place they had never been. And he brings them right into the middle of it. By the way, what was going on around them was so chaotic and so bizarre that there's a word that's taken from worship of the Greek god Pan, and it's pandemonium. Have you ever heard that word before? It was so bizarre to the people of their day, what happened in this area, they coined a new phrase, pandemonium. So here is Jesus, and he leads his disciples into the middle of pandemonium. And he asks them the question, who do people say that I am? I want to say this at the outset of this sermon. The greatest moment of the church is always in pandemonium. Always. The greatest moment of the church has always been and will always be not separating from culture, not pulling away from the world around us, but seeing the kingdom of God and the love of Jesus advance into the world in which we live. The brightest moment for the church will always be when it gets darkest. Always has been, always will be. But I want you to notice what happens Jesus takes his disciples to the middle of pandemonium, and many of us believe that that worship that I'm kind of hesitant to describe is happening all around them. And Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? And his disciples will kind of shielding their eyes from everything that's happening. Say, well, some say some of the prophets. And then Jesus says to them this definitive question, but what about you, he asked, Who do you say that I am? So the question is, what do you think? What do you think about Jesus? In the face of all other gods that are available to us, who do you say Jesus is? And in the midst of pandemonium, Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. By the way, it's the first time in Scripture anyone has looked at Jesus and said, you are the son of the living God. Many had come to the conclusion he might be the Messiah, but none had spoken freely that he was the son of the living God. And the question is, what do you think about Jesus? It doesn't matter what our parents think, what our aunt and uncle thinks, or the friend that brought us thinks. What matters is, what do we think? What do I believe to be true about Jesus? In the context of a culture 
that's filled with pandemonium. The question is brought to us. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? Well, again, Peter replies, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And by the way, the phrase the living God is very definitive. It delineates the God of the Bible from all other gods. It delineates Jesus from all other gods. Because you see, in the Older Testament, that's how Jewish people termed their God. That their God was different than all the other Baals, all the other gods of Egypt. All the other gods were other gods, but the God of Israel was the living God. First appears in Deuteronomy 5.26, under the leadership of Moses, the text says, For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? In the famous story of David and Goliath, as David is going out to do battle against the gods of the Philistines, he says this, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then in Psalm 42, 2, the psalmist writes, My soul thirsts for God. Which God? For the living God. When can I go and meet with God? You see, it's clear in the Bible that there is a difference between the God of the Bible and other gods. It's very clear that there's a difference between Jesus and other gods because he is the son of the living God. And again, Peter makes this announcement. He looks at Jesus in the midst of cultural pandemonium, and he says, you are the son of the living God. I will tell you, Jesus has been waiting over three years for someone to say that to him. Because when someone finally says it, Jesus makes three announcements and they're critical. Two of them come in one verse. The announcement is this. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades won't overcome it. You see, when Peter acknowledges Jesus as being the son of the living God, Jesus changes his name. He changes his name to rock, stable one, the constant one. And if you know anything about Peter, you know this is a joke. Peter is erratic. He's crazy. He's impulsive. He runs on nerves and emotions. But Jesus looks at him and says, I'm changing your name. Now that you know who I am, your life will be fundamentally changed. You're going right now as the nutty one, the crazy one. But from now on, you will be known as the rock. And what I can tell you, of over three decades of ministry, I have watched people who've come in faith to the conclusion Peter did, and they have made the same announcement, that Jesus truly is the Son of the living God. And when they've made that faith statement, their lives have been fundamentally changed. I have watched people literally become new people, different people, because of this acknowledgement of Jesus in their lives. But what I also know is in this announcement where Peter's name is changed from Simon to Peter to the rock, that Jesus says, and I will build my church 
on the rock. I know that some theologians or denominations believe that it really meant that the church would be built on Peter. But I want to be clear, that's not found in the Greek. In the original language, here's what Jesus says. You are Petros, but on this Petra, I will build my church. There's a difference. You are Petros, which is rock, but on this Petra, which really means cliff or massive, massive side of a mountain, he says, I will build my church. And here's what I believe. I believe Jesus looked at Peter and said, because you know who I am now, you'll become the stable one. And then he looked over his shoulder and Jesus pointed at the cliff face you saw with all of its gods, all of the pandemonium, and all of the evil stuff that's happening. And Jesus points right at that cliff face and says, there is where I'm going to build my church. We're not going to run from anyone or anything. We're going to build a church in the midst of the worst of it, and we're going to see the kingdom of God advance. And that's what Jesus does. And so Jesus points at that cliff face with all of that idolatry and says, right here, we're going to build a church. And stunningly enough, his words proved true. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, the apostle Paul writes the following. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. You see, Jesus was right. There were people involved with pandemonium who would come to meet him and their lives would be forever changed. The other thing Jesus said was, I will build my church. Jesus had never mentioned church up until this point, but as soon as someone identified him as the son of the living God, Jesus now says, now we can talk about something I've waited three years to talk about, and it's the church. Peter, because you acknowledged who I am, now we can have church. Because church is built upon this confession that Jesus truly is the Son of the living God. That's what the church's foundation is. And if that is not the foundation of a church, it's not a church. You see, the church is all about that confession that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of the living God. And then Jesus makes the announcement that we read about last week. Now Jesus makes another announcement. He says, the text reads, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. There were three things Jesus had been waiting almost three years to talk about. Peter, you don't have to be the unstable one. If you will acknowledge me for who I am, I will transform your life. You will become a rock. The next thing Jesus had been wanting to talk about for over three years was the church. That Jesus was going to usher this new institution into the world that would bring the kingdom of God. And he had been waiting almost three years to talk about his pending death. But he never mentioned it until someone recognized him for what he truly was. And when they did, he talked about it. In closing, how do we put feet to our faith with this message? First of all, what is your confession? What do you believe to be true about Jesus? Jesus. 
I believe with all of my heart. I've watched it in my own life, in the life of my family, and people that I've known for the 50-odd years I've been on this earth. That when people make that confession that Jesus is truly the Son of the living God, everything changes. We become a new creation in Christ. All things begin to pass away, and all things begin to be made new. And the last thing with putting feet to our faith is this. The church is the mechanism Jesus is going to use to bring the kingdom of God into this world. He announced it in the middle of pandemonium. And by the way, I think it would have sounded laughable. Here's Jesus in the midst of what some scholars say would have been upwards to a million people who would come to worship the Greek god Pan during pandemonium. And he's there with this little band of 12 people. And he points at everything that's happening. He says, you see all of this? It won't prevail. But my church will. Guys, you're going to see the kingdom of God come. And it would be laughable if it weren't true. And we sit here 2,000 years later, and you don't even know where the word pandemonium came from. But you know that Jesus, and you have the opportunity to know that Jesus truly is the son of the living God. Would you stand with me as we close? As we stand together, I'm going to ask that you would close your eyes. If I were to say in our culture, what comes closest to Caesarea Philippi and what was going on, I would say it would be a hybrid between Burning Man and universities. Something like that. Some of you know that there's a smorgasbord of gods. There's different morals and ethics of which you live. But this morning you're sensing the call of Jesus. And the call of Jesus is always the same. It's two words. Follow me. My prayer for every woman and man that's here is that each one of us would make the decision to follow Jesus. 